This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles as we continue our series of studies in the Gospel of Matthew to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew 17, we're looking this morning at verses 1 through 13. Page 822 in the Pew Bibles. That roller coaster we talked about last week is heading up once again. We said last week that the last few passages have really had their ups and downs. Uh, well, certainly uh, heading toward a high point, in, uh, not only in Jesus' ministry, but in the Gospel of Matthew as a whole, with the transfiguration. Matthew chapter 17, verse 1, hear the word of God. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word this morning hungry, hungry for your truth, hungry for you, hungry for Christ, hungry for the Spirit. Father, as we take up this passage this morning, we pray that your Spirit would teach us, guide us into a deeper and true understanding of your word. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. It was just a week before this transfiguration took place that Jesus said to his disciples in the preceding verse, uh, verse 28 of chapter 16, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. 
Now, as we looked at that passage last week, I said that I do not think in that passage that Jesus was speaking there of his transfiguration. After all, it would seem strange that he would say, you know, some of you won't taste death, some of you won't die within the next week. Before something, to you all, you, Some of you will still be here to witness what takes place in a week. That seems a little odd. I think Jesus speaking there uh, was talking not of any one particular event, but of the coming of the kingdom, of the spread of the kingdom, a, com- a complex of events that involved his death and resurrection, then his ascension to heaven, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, preaching of the gospel on the day of Pentecost, and then the uh, explosive growth of the... New Testament church. And certainly that was the kingdom. That was the kingdom coming with power. And not everyone who heard Jesus' words there were around to witness that. Judas Iscariot, notably, did not live to see those events take place. And even after they started taking place, uh, we we read of uh, John, uh, the son of Zebedee, who was put to death in Acts chapter 12. So he witnessed it to a point. And then the Lord took him home to be with him. However, I also think it's not coincidental that in the Gospels, after Jesus makes that statement, we immediately come up to a description of the transfiguration. I don't think the transfiguration is the fulfillment of those words, but I do think that the transfiguration is uh, just a foretaste or a glimpse into the nature of Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, who is building his church. I also think it's not coincidental that Jesus' glory in this way is not revealed until after Peter makes his confession. A confession that's made in faith that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. A confession that's made as Jesus himself said, not because Peter's figured it out or because someone told him, but because the Father has revealed this knowledge to Peter and to the other disciples and ultimately to anyone, then or now, who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. The transfiguration, certainly a highlight in the life of our Lord and the life of these disciples who witnessed it, um, it tells us a great deal about Jesus. And specifically this morning, Uh, There are three truths about Jesus that the transfiguration uh, reveals. The first place it speaks to us tells us something about the glory of Jesus. The transfiguration, obviously, first and foremost, reveals something of Jesus' glory. So let's look at verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now, why these three, not the twelve? I don't know. Uh, Jesus did single out these three, maybe as, uh, as sort of the first among equals, uh, maybe the executive committee among the twelve, to be with Jesus, to be witnesses of this thing that was about to take place. Led them up a high mountain. It doesn't specify a speculation about which mountain this might have been based on the geography, based on where Jesus was in chapter 16, but ultimately we don't know which mountain, but they went up a high mountain by themselves. And while they're there on this mountain, Jesus is transfigured, or we might use the word transformed, before them. This strange metamorphosis takes place in this Jesus they had been with, in this Jesus that they knew. He begins to glow brightly. 
The way it's described here, his face began to shine like the sun. Not just a glow, but but dazzling, blinding in its radiance like the sun. His clothes became white as light. Presumably it wasn't just his face. His whole body is shining like the sun. And that brilliance came through his clothing that he was wearing. And as they're standing there, they witness this. What does it mean? Well, this was a very important occurrence for the disciples to see this. Because Peter, and and speaking for the other disciples, having confessed Jesus to be the Messiah they now get to see a little bit of what it means when Peter confessed that he was the Son of God. You know, in just a a few weeks, really, a month or two, we're going to be singing Christmas carols, singing those hymns that celebrate the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there's one hymn that has the words in it, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. One of the staggering thoughts of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ was that there in that manger was no one less than the Son of God himself. Well, that's who was standing here before the disciples. Now, when Jesus became incarnate, when he took to himself human flesh or human nature, we speak about that. It's easy to formulate that biblically, but it's much harder really to comprehend what that entails. Paul speaks to it in Philippians chapter 2 where it speaks of of the Son of God uh, made himself nothing, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, emptied himself, and took the form of a servant. What does it mean, made himself nothing? Well, one thing it does not mean. It does not mean that he gave up in any way, in the least degree, any of his divinity, any of his deity. When he became incarnate, he did not in any degree cease to be God. He became human. It was an addition, but there was no subtraction of his essential deity. But that deity was veiled. It was hidden. Now, there were times when we've seen it before now in the miracles that Jesus did. But these three disciples are privileged to see a view of Jesus, not just in what he could do, but in who he was. It's Isaiah there in the temple of the Lord, gazing on the Lord as the angels celebrate his staggering holiness. So these disciples had this view of Jesus, just a taste of it, just a glimpse of Jesus in his pre-incarnate glory. And it's blinding. It's dazzling. It's like looking at the sun for its radiance. Do you see Jesus like that? We talked last time when Jesus said, who do people say that I am? And they came up with some pretty high opinions of him. He's John the Baptist, or he's Elijah, or he's Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. High opinion indeed, but not high enough. And, and Peter and the other disciples have it right when they confess Jesus as the Messiah, but now Jesus gives them just a view, a little bit of a taste 
of what that really means. So the transfiguration speaks to us here of the glory of Jesus, just just for just a, a few moments, to see him as he really is. Dear friends, we look at Jesus. We need to recognize that this is the Holy One of Israel. We need to recognize there's no separation. There's not the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New. They're one and the same. In fact, John, in his gospel, speaking of that, that glorious vision that Isaiah had in the temple, tells us in John chapter 12 that it was Jesus whom Isaiah saw. The holy, holy, holy one of Israel was the Son of God before his incarnation. And it was that same glorious being that these disciples are privileged to see here. I sometimes pray this prayer of Moses. Lord, show me your glory. Remember Moses prayed that? And the Lord said, well, I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock and I'm going to pass by and you'll see my back, but you will not see my front. You will you'll not see my face. You'll see my back. And I'll cover you there. And that's all you will see. And Moses was able to have that glimpse of the Lord. And when he came down, his own face was all aglow because he had been in the presence of God and he had seen the glory of God. I sometimes pray that prayer of Moses, show me your glory. Because as J.B. Phillips said, all too often our God is too small. We offend God by how, how meager our thinking of him really is. Do you ever pray that? You should, and I should, that God would reveal to us more and more his glory his holiness, the magnificence of his being. It would do wonders for your faith and for mine. Well, that's what these disciples were privileged to see. It's the glory of Jesus. But the transfiguration also instructs us as to the preeminence of Jesus. Look at what takes place. It gets even stranger. Verse 3, Behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah. Exactly. Moses and Elijah. And what were they doing? They were talking with Jesus. Now, these disciples lived 1,400 years after the time of Moses. They lived 700 years after the time of Elijah. How did they recognize them? Well, we don't know. It doesn't say. Uh, maybe there was other communication that took place. Maybe the Lord simply let them know that's who these two figures were. But they're talking with Jesus. And Peter starts talking. Lord, this is great. It's good that we are here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. This is great, Lord. We, we need to make our guests comfortable. So let's set up some booths. Let's build some tents. The word is tabernacle. Skene in Greek. It's the word that's John 1, 14. Uh, the Lord made his dwelling or the Lord tabernacled among us. Now, Peter starts talking, and his intentions are certainly good. Uh, let's make them comfortable. Let's preserve the moment. Let's keep this going. Uh, let's accommodate our guests. Now, why Moses and Elijah? Well, certainly uh, great prophet figures from the Old Testament, certainly preeminent uh, men. Both had, had much in common, uh, both uh, were representatives of the Lord. Both knew what it was to suffer rejection. Both were used mightily by God in their day. 
But you look at Moses, Moses was the great lawgiver. Elijah was sort of the prototypical prophet. And together, they represent the law and the prophets. In other words, what you have standing here embodied in these two men is the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. And Peter says, Lord, this is, this is great. Let's, let's build tabernacles to house each one of you. Three tenths. And he was still speaking, verse 5, Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Now, we've encountered that before. The, the last few verses of Exodus, when you read through all those admittedly excruciating details of the building of the tabernacle in the book of Exodus, and what happens at the end, after it's completed, after they dedicate it, God moves in. And there's this glory, this Shekinah, the presence of God, the radiance of His presence. This glory takes up occupation in the Holy of Holies. And there on the mountain, that same glory appears. This bright, luminescent, radiant, glowing cloud overshadows them. And it says, if that weren't frightening enough, it starts to talk. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We've heard that before. Where have we heard that before? The baptism. The exact same words at his baptism. It's as if the father's joy and delight in his son overflows. This is my son. I am so proud of him. With him I am well pleased. But while the father says the same thing here of Jesus, he adds something else, even as he interrupts Peter in his oration. Listen to him. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, he's already said. And as Peter is laying out the program, the Father says, Listen, listen to my Son. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. They just, they dropped. They hit the dirt. They, they covered their faces. It was just too much. We've seen that. Anytime a human being encounters the glory of God, he's terrified. Or like Isaiah, he's conscience-stricken. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Two things, this sense of overwhelming awe or terror in the presence of God, and an overwhelming sense of sinfulness and guilt in the holiness of God. And that's exactly what they experience here. Jesus came and touched them, saying, get up, don't be afraid. And they get up, and they see Jesus only. You get that. What's going on here? Jesus appears in his glory, and Moses and Elijah, representing the Old Testament covenant, appear with him. Now, Peter makes a grave mistake. Let's build a tabernacle for Moses. Let's build a tabernacle for Elijah. And let's build a tabernacle for Jesus. No, Peter. There's only one 
who's in the tabernacle. There's only one who is in the temple. There is only one who is on the heavenly throne. And it's not Moses. And it's not Elijah. Great as they were, used by God as they were. There's one only, and that's Jesus. And the father finally says, this, is, this one, not, not Moses, not Elijah, but Jesus is my son. Listen to him. And they fall down on their face, and when they get up, the Old Testament is gone. Jesus alone is there. You see how this speaks of the preeminence of Jesus. Not that the Old Testament was unimportant. Not that the Old Testament was eradicated. But the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is now the one who speaks the word of God. Jesus is now the prophet of God. And Jesus is also the priest and the sacrifice. Listen to him. You see, the transfiguration impresses on the minds of those disciples and on our minds the preeminence of Jesus as the fulfillment of Scripture. The glory of Jesus, the preeminence of Jesus. This passage also speaks to us fittingly in the context of his glory and preeminence, the suffering of Jesus. Look at verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain after this magnificent experience, Jesus commanded them again, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Now, this is the first time. Jesus has said before, many several times actually, don't tell anyone who I am. But this time he said, don't tell anyone about it until the resurrection has taken place. Because as we've said, he doesn't want to instigate undue messianic fervor among the people. But after the resurrection has taken place, They have the preeminent proof of Jesus' claim. They have what Jesus himself described as the sign of Jonah, right? As Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man would be three days in the ground, but he would be raised. So don't tell anyone about this until after the resurrection has taken place, until after you have that sign to point to. To, to, to demonstrate that Jesus' claims were true. Well, the disciples ask in verse 10, here's Jesus speaking about his, his death again. Then why, Jesus, do the disciples, or do the scribes rather, say that first Elijah must come? Now, what are they asking? Jesus has already described his death to them, that he was going to Jerusalem and he would suffer many things at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and he would be killed, but he would be raised. Well, wait a minute. Let's get the chronology. The scribes say that that Elijah will come first and restore all things, and then the Messiah. Now, the question is this. If Elijah comes and restores all things, brings in true justice and righteousness, then how can these things happen to the Messiah? This great injustice. You know, you see what they're asking. It's a, it's, a, it's a chronological question. It's a timing question. If Elijah comes and makes everything right, then how can these things happen to the Messiah afterward? Well, Jesus explains in verse 11. Elijah does come. He will restore all things. He agrees with the scribes to that point. However, the scribes have missed a significant fact of their recent history. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So they're right, although that restoration wasn't going to maybe be as all-encompassing as they thought. But 
Elijah came and they missed it. And they did all kinds of things to him. Ultimately, it wasn't the elders, teachers of the law, and the uh, the chief priests who killed John. It was Herod and the, the sordid circumstances we studied uh, a couple chapters ago. Uh, nevertheless, they rejected John. They did not recognize that he was the Elijah to come. But then note what Jesus says. Elijah came and he suffered and ultimately was killed in, in pursuing his ministry. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood. He was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Now he's already told them that. Back in what chapter 11, he is the Elijah who was to come. But now it's starting to kind of come together. They understood, okay, this was John the Baptist. We see what happened with him. He was the Elijah to come, and now we understand how it is that even though Elijah has come in the person of John the Baptist, the Messiah could suffer because the forerunner, the Elijah, John himself, suffered and was rejected and died. And Jesus said, just as it was with my forerunner, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Pieces are starting to come together. But you see, once again, there's this overwhelming manifestation of glory together with talk of Christ's suffering. Martin Luther, who said, you cannot understand one word of Scripture apart from the cross. Pattern with Jesus, as we've seen, is suffering and the cross and then his glory. That's the pattern for those who come after him. Suffering in this life, the various afflictions that we live with in this fallen world, uh, simply because it's a fallen world, or maybe specifically because of our faith in Christ, direct persecution for being Christians, we bear our own cross following a crucified Messiah. But the glory is coming. And there is a sense in which we could say Christ's own glory here is a, is a down payment or a foretaste or a promise of our own glory with him. But we are not above our master. We are not above our teacher. Just as he suffered and then came the glory, so we suffer and then, come, then comes our glory in him. That's where the prosperity and the health, wealth, and gospel preachers go wrong. It's glory without the cross. Your friends, as long as we are in this world, this fallen, broken world, until we die and the Lord takes us home, or until he should come back, we are, at least to some degree, carrying a cross because we follow a cross-bearing Savior. First the cross, then the crown. And that's what Jesus is teaching here. You know, as we come to the Lord's table, we do come to both of those elements. Uh, We remember a Savior who was crucified for us as our substitute, and yet God raised him up. The guarantee of our own resurrection. The guarantee of our own glory with him. Do not let the cross, do not let the pain, do not let the discouragements, the disappointments, the heartbreaks of this life take your eyes off that transfigured, glorious Jesus. Because as he suffered and then entered into his glory, we in him suffer as we may now, we'll also enter with him into and share in his glory. That's what the transfiguration speaks of to his disciples then and to us today. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this passage. Thank you for this magnificent outbreaking of Christ's glory. The veil was just momentarily brushed aside. 
Father, we thank you that this is our Savior. We thank you that even now he is at your right hand, reigning until every enemy is placed under his feet. And we thank you, Father, that we share in his glory and that that glory awaits all who are in Christ Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.